0: your host, Dr. Kwame Sukina, will give you tools to experience wisdom in your everyday life. Listen each week as Dr. Kwame Sukina shares stories that will help guide your faith, perspective, and attitude in every situation. This is Dr. Sukina of Indigenous Messengers International, and here is our host. Welcome to Be Responsible therefore dependable. In the mid-90s, I lived in the suburbs, the suburbs of a major city. You might call me a chick from the burbs. Um, And in the 50s, we did all of our shopping downtown. There were no shopping malls. That was before the shopping mall era. So we would go downtown to do that. I remember when I was a child going to Sears, and they had this candy aisle where you would go and they would actually scoop up the candy and weigh it. And I used to love and look forward to going downtown for that. But when the shopping malls came in, we stopped going downtown. So in the mid-90s, I had most of what I did was in the suburbs. After malls, uh, the advent of malls came in, then we did most of our stuff downtown. Like We would go to concerts downtown, Birthday special dinners downtown, things like that. But we didn't really shop downtown. So I really wasn't familiar with the inner workings of of downtown, especially the inner city, where the low-income housing was. We called that the projects. In fact, it was called the bottoms. And I really didn't even know it existed. It was completely out of my paradigm. In 1995, I was 43 years old and the mother of teens. I was involved in a local church, and I was a middle-class conservative. That was my background at the time. And given that background, I would share and participate in events and share the love of Jesus. We would do outreaches. And I heard about this outreach that was taking place, that a new church in downtown, the downtown part of the city that had opened a coffee shop. And this was also the new times of the coffee shops being so cool. Well, this church was a church slash coffee shop. It was the new, new cool place to hang out. And so I thought, well, I want to, I want to try that out. I want to go down there. And I also want to be involved in their, their outreach. And their outreach was going to be to the inner city, to the poor, We were going to play games with kids, feed the people, and share the gospel message. A week before the outreach, I decided to go to the coffee shop and kind of hang out down there on a Saturday night, hear the Christian musicians playing, and get to know some of the people that I might be on this outreach with. I asked my friend Debbie to go with me because I wasn't used to driving into the inner city by myself. And when I look back now, it really kind of embarrasses me how little I knew outside of my little box that I was living in at the time. I remember driving into the area with Debbie, and I was afraid of the area. I was afraid of the unknown, and I was afraid of these people that I didn't have a clue about. My paradigm at the time saw these people as the mission field, and I was the missionary, and I was bringing the truth to them. Actually, they wouldn't have had anything in that paradigm really to offer me. I pulled up in the parking lot, and, and where the coffee shop church was, there was a big, big fence around it. It was right in the middle of the inner city, and the projects or the low-income housing were all around it, and there was a big, huge field between the projects and the church slash coffee shop. And I glanced to the right, and I looked, and up against this fence, on the outside of the fence, outside of the parking lot, there was an African-American man, and he was trapped up against the fence, and there were five police officers beating him. One of them had a club in it, Billy Club, and was hitting him over the head while he was trying to protect his head, and the other four were beating him with their fists. And I was in shock. My friend Debbie was as well. We gasped. We were like, what in the world? And, and when I looked, I, I didn't want to look, but I could not look. And time slowed down because we were in trauma. And I looked, and all these African-American people, mostly women and children, were standing out in this field watching. And I remember thinking at the time, why in the world aren't they doing anything? I couldn't understand why no one was helping him. I did not understand at the time the powerlessness that they had in the system that would not allow them to do anything. The man directing traffic came up and kind of knocked on the window like, move on ahead. And so we kind of jumped out of our shock for a minute and and parked the car. And we went inside of the, the church. And I remember walking in just being out of my body, being just shut down. And and, and I, I really couldn't process what I'd just seen. So we walked into the building and I thought, okay, we're now in this safe place. And so I'm going to find, we're going to find a table to sit at so we can hear the music and hear the musicians. And so we sat down, we found a table with a good view. And while I'm sitting there, I hear this message in my it wasn't an audible message, but it was in my brain and in my heart. That's right. That's right. Sit here and listen to them sing songs about me while you've just watched a man be beaten mercilessly. That's right. and I, I was just like, oh, my gosh. And so I looked over at my friend and I said, I I've got to do something. and So I thought, what do I do with this information? So I thought, well, I'll go up to the pastor because he's the person doing the outreach next week, and I'll give him the information, and, and then he'll do something. He'll take care of it. So I find find the right person, the go-to person, and I go up and I try to explain this. And it was just like a little—I was talking to the air. It was like it was just going right over his head. He was very involved in trying to get everything set up and run what they were doing that night. And it just was going nowhere. It was falling on deaf ears. So I went and sat back down at the table, and I thought to myself— Okay, well, I've done my due diligence now. You know, I've done what I needed to do. It's out of my hands. I've told the people of authority, uh, in authority, and, and so it's not on me. And I sat there and turned around, and the, fir- the first musician got up, and he was singing these beautiful songs about Jesus, and I heard that voice again. That's right. That's right. Sit here and listen to them sing songs about me when you've just watched a man beaten mercilessly. That's right. And I looked over at my friend and I said, I've got to do something. I, I can't just sit here. I feel like, you know, the Lord is telling me that I need to do something, but I, I really don't know what to do. So I, she said, well, I'm not getting anything, but if you're getting something, then I'm with you. So I got up, I walked to the front of the of the church coffee shop building where they they welcomed people and this was before cell phones so there was no cell phones but they had a a phone hanging on the wall and I asked them can I use your phone they said sure and so I called 411 at the time if you wanted information you called 411 and and I got the number for the jail the metro jail and I called and I got a woman on the phone at the Metro Jail. And I said to her, told her what happened. And I said, I feel like, you know, we need to do something. And and she kind of was like, oh, honey, it's okay. You know, this happens and you just need to kind of go back to your life and what you're doing and we'll take care of it. But I couldn't go back to my life. My life had been forever changed and altered. So I went back to my friend at the table and I said, I have got to drive down to the jail. I've I've got to go there to meet with this man to find out if he's okay. And so we got in the car, we drove down to the jail and we we went in. And of course, they weren't going to give us any information either. We went up to the little podium place. They were behind a a little window, and and, and got the same message, really. You need to just kind of go back to the suburbs and and your nice life. And as we were walking away, an African-American bail bondsman happened to hear us, and he came up and he said, listen, if you want to find this man, let me tell you what happens. When they rough them up, they take them to General Hospital and stitch them up before they bring them to night court. I was just like I couldn't believe this it was like it was an everyday happenstance so I told my friend let's go to general hospital so we get in the car and we're driving we driven about four blocks stopped at a traffic light and all of a sudden I saw two police cars going in the opposite direction from where we were going and I just knew I just knew by word of knowledge discernment that, that that the man that we wanted to find was in the one of those cars. And so I just flipped the car around, followed back, found a parking spot. And I remember it just like it was yesterday. We parked the car and here we were walking down this to the night court. I'd never even heard of night court. The only night court I'd heard of was a comedy show on television that I didn't, had never watched. But I knew it existed. And... I remember I had on all white that night, a white shirt. I looked like, you know, the man from Glad or (laughs) Mr. Clean or whatever. I had on a white shirt, white jeans, white shoes, and I was clutching my white purse, afraid someone was going to steal my little bit of money I had because of my paradigm of the place. Well, we walked into night court, and when we walked in, it was packed. It was Saturday night. It was 10 or 11 o'clock at night. It, it was hopping. Let me just say that. And we were kind of pushing our way through and squeezing through on a pew, uh, walking over people to try to find a place to sit. Still, both of us traumatized. Uh, understand that. We were still out of our bodies and in shock. And so we sit down there and, and immediately, as soon as we sat down, they brought him out the man that we saw, and he had a big, huge knot on his head and stitches where they had stitched him up. And the police officers began to speak to the judge. And before I knew it, we looked up and Debbie and I were halfway down the aisle. (laughs) I don't know how that even happened. And the judge was addressing us saying, are you a part of this case? And Debbie said, well, we saw it happen in She's going to tell you what happened, and pointed to me. And so there I was, kind of on the spot, and I began to speak. And what I said was, I don't know what this gentleman has done, but I just watched five men, police officers, beat him and treat him worse than an animal. And I don't care what he has done. No one should be treated that way. And I glanced over at the officers, and they were looking at me with great contempt. It was very, very frightening at the time, because I had been taught a lot about covering and being under authority and not speaking out against your authority, and I saw the police as my authority, and I was having to go against paradigms that I had learned, that I had believed, not that authority is a bad thing, but I didn't quite know what to do, but I was propelled on this journey with God for justice. And as I was speaking, this woman in in the courtroom started yelling, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I knew you'd send angels. Thank you, Jesus. And at that point, that was enough validation for me to know we were in the right place at the right time, and we had been sent—that we were there, having an encounter with the judge of the universe, not just the judge of the metro court. And that was when I learned the man's name. His name was Lavelle, and the judge said, "Would you plea to? Would you please testify? Come back at a later date and testify." And we both said that we would. Um, they took Lavelle back out, and, and we sat through court, and then when court was over, the woman who had been yelling, Thank you, Jesus! Thank you, Jesus! came to us, and it was Lavelle's sister. And she told us this story that was just, oh, it just touched me so deeply. They had been some of those that had been standing out there watching their family member beaten, the ones that looked powerless that I had judged for not doing anything in my heart because my paradigm, I hadn't had the experiences that they had. And she said, on the way down to the jail, she was with her two teenage sons standing there with her at the court with us. On the way down to the jail, my sons were in the car, and they said, Mama, there is no justice for us and our people. And she said, I told my sons, there's a law higher than man's law. And it's God's law. And he will give us justice. And then you two angels showed up. Yep. Two white chicks from the suburbs. Scared to death. First time in the inner city. On a mission of justice for the one who made everyone and loves everyone, regardless of race, gender, gender financial means or anything else you know since i was testifying for lavelle i felt like i should at least know what he had done this is what he had done he was driving through the inner city and he was pulled over he had one marijuana joint on him and he ran because he was scared he was he would lose his good job at the state we showed up at his trial when they realized he had witnesses, they actually changed what they were saying that he had done wrong and they threw the book at him and said he had attacked a police officer. I can definitely say he was not attacking a police officer. There were five of them and one of him, and he was trapped up against the fence. Did he do wrong? Yes. But he was not attacking a police officer. They told him if he would plead guilty, and not go to trial. Now, and let me backtrack to say, they closed the court down and brought my friend and I in, and Lavelle and the police officers, and cleared the court so no one else in the city would know what was going on. They told him if he would plead guilty and say he had attacked a police officer, they would expunge his record and he would do, serve no time. We offered Lavelle to go with him all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary. Because we were on we wanted justice. And he looked at me straight in the eye and he said, Thank you so much for being willing to stand with me, but I want you to understand something. I'm a black man, and if I go to court, I don't think I will probably get justice. I'm going to take the deal. And just move on with my life. I said to him, you know, Lavelle, you didn't deserve to be beaten. That's why God showed up for you and and brought us here. You did open a gate when you broke the law in the city. It was against the law to have marijuana in that city. And you opened a gate. God wanted to send us. He saw fit to send two white chicks from the suburbs to let you know that God has his hand on you, and he always will. So choose wisely. Be responsible. We parted friends that day, and we had helped each other immeasurably. Lavelle and his family taught me of an alternate reality of life that existed right alongside the reality I lived in, over only a few miles from my home that I knew nothing about. When I signed on to the outreach, it was not the planned outreach I anticipated. It was traumatic. It was intense. It was all-consuming. And it was spontaneous. But it was ordained. And it was life-changing, not just for Lavelle, but for me and for Debbie as well. It wasn't the classic... I am the evangelical, and you are the mission field, and we are here to tell you about Jesus so you can learn from us. It was not that. It was an immersive experience for both parties, learning from each other. It was the true good news. Being thrown into a cultural exchange with Lavelle and his people changed my life and paradigm so much that when George Floyd died, I had experience to draw from, I could understand the plight of African-Americans and men with some, I'm saying some, police officers. That Saturday evening in 1995, I had the opportunity to take responsibility as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Malachi 6.8 says, he has told you, mankind, what is good. What does the Lord require of you except to carry out justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God? Victor Frankl stated, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response, end our response. In our response lies our growth and freedom. That space is sometimes narrowed due to trauma. I've seen this as I've worked with people and as I've been through my own trauma. But research now shows us that due to neuroplasticity of the brain, that space can be enlarged over time if we do our inner work. Increasing that space gives us the opportunity to be responsible, response, able, able to respond. Responsibility is important. It gives us a sense of purpose. To act responsibly means that we are going to accept what is required of us and carry it out to the best of our ability. People who are responsible are accountable, and being accountable Builds integrity, and we need more of that in leadership today. Responsible people do not play the blame game and are not into the victim mentality. Being responsible means being dependable, keeping our promises and our commitments. Responsibility is essential for successful relationships like marriage, parenting, friendship or work collaborations, without responsibility on board, our lives are like ships without rudders or sails. We'll just aimlessly wander through life, becoming a victim of our own making. As a therapist in the field of dysfunctional families, I worked with people that were victims of their childhoods. Many were abused. More than that, not giving life skills and tools. At the same time. Having a dysfunctional childhood does not mean we have to be dysfunctional adults. Using our childhood to shut out our responsibility in our adult lives is not only self-crippling, but it perpetuates our victimhood. In that case, we become the abusers of our own selves and the authors of our own pain, like choose your own poison. In order to heal, we must take responsibility. Nobody else is going to do that for us. Responsibility for our lives and our futures. The first step of responsibility is to do a self-assessment of our history. Not to blame, but to take stock of what we've been through, what this has cost us. Then we can respond to the challenges ahead. Our past does not define us. We can learn from it and move on. For example, in your car, you have a rearview mirror and two side mirrors. They are there for perspective, so we can see what's behind us. But we don't drive down the road looking at those the whole time, or we will have a wreck. The windshield in front of us is far larger. I have a little button that was given to me as a gift, and it says, I wear it sometimes, it says, learn from the past and then get the hell out of there. We don't have to stay in our living hells forever. Responsibility is the key that turns the lock from living in victimhood to entering the land of Victorville. These are some of the traits that I aspire to be in my quest to live a responsible and intentional life. Responsible people don't make excuses. They access their situation and then do what they can do to be proactive, even if life gives them difficulties. Responsible people organize their lives. They write down their commitments and they follow through with them. Their slogan is, failing to plan is planning to fail. Responsible people manage their time and are on time. They don't wait till the last minute to prepare, but prepare in advance. They don't wing it. They also realize that being late for other people is taking someone else's time. It's stealing something from someone else, and they are mindful of others. Responsible people store their emotions. They're not reactive and they don't allow their emotions to fuel negative outcomes. Responsible people are not complainers. They're aware that complaining is a waste of time and energy. They would rather use that energy to take steps to change their lives in a positive direction. Responsible people are consistent. They are aware that consistency builds momentum and keeps one on track until the goal is accomplished. Responsible people admit their mistakes. They own their humanity. They don't expect to be perfect, but they will work to fix any issue at hand. Responsible people are self disciplined. They're willing to deal with the discomfort if necessary to make lasting changes and take care of business. And responsible people don't procrastinate. They don't put off what they can do today till tomorrow. They realize that putting things off till the last minute That won't ensure the best work, so they dig right in and take care of the task. Being responsible is not always easy. You know, I worked with addicts and came from an addictive family. The last thing addicts want to do is be responsible. A therapist once said if responsibility was a person, an addict would shoot and kill it. Addicts always look for the easier, softer way. They also look for geographical escapes, so they don't have to be responsible. We live in an addictive society. In that addictive society, many times we are wanting the easier, softer way. You know, I've not always made responsible choices. You can talk to my children, family members. You can look at my history. Uh, we can't, I can't go back. And redo some of those things. Many times we can't go back, but we can do something I call a living amends. And a living amends is living our lives from this point on differently in the right way, making the right choices. You know, in the case of LaVale that day, I did make the responsible choice. I showed up. I showed up responsibly and dependably in the life of another fellow human being. In so doing, I was reliable and dependable. That's the outcome of living a responsible life. As citizens of heaven, we need to be responsible in every area of our lives because our actions don't just affect us. They affect others and the planet on which we live. Thank you for joining me today and giving me some of your precious time we have a website, indigenousmessengers.com, and you can visit there and you can learn about uh, our ministry and see the things that we have there to, partic- to, to partake of. And as I always say, I dedicate this to my children and my grandchildren. Thank you for listening to Be Attitudes with Dr. Kwamenik Sukina. Be sure to follow the show for more tools on how to experience wisdom in your everyday life, for you to walk in victory with the right attitude.